Picking out an outfit is hard enough, but what do you wear when you're transplanting yourself across an ocean? In this episode of Voices from the Past, the Plymouth Plantation podcast, Dan Rosen, master artisan of historic clothing and textiles, uncovers how English colonists acquired and wore their clothes in New and Old England. He also explores how the English colonists interfaced attire with their new climate, and how they interacted with new, differently attired people. Enjoy. Well, thank you all for being here. I'm excited, and uh, anyone who knows me knows that I get really excited about this stuff. So if I rant or I talk too quickly, please you know, call me and slow me down. Um, so before we get too far into this, um, there's a mixture of images. There's also some text to read. Being a public school art teacher formally, I know that some people prefer to read, but I'll read everything out as well. Um, also, if you want me to go back later, I'm happy to share some images too, uh, to go back if you want to take a closer look. And at the end, I'll take questions. And I also have some uh, reproductions, most of them that I've made, some of them from the plantation here, that reflect some of the latest research in what people brought with them to the New World and were wearing back in England. Um, so before we get too far, I want to start off talking about the evidence. Because we know a lot, and a lot of this comes from evidence. There's very, very little guesswork in here as to what people wore in this time period, how they used their clothes, and what they did when they got here. There's always going to be gaps, but I hope this will shed some light on what we actually know about these people who came here. Um, one thing that strikes many of the guests here is how much we know about the people who came to settle in Plymouth and uh, New England and those that came before them. It's often easy to imagine that these experience, experiences hundreds of years ago um, could not or would not be committed to writing or imagery, uh, and yet that's pretty much the opposite. Um, what I'm going to show you today really only scratches the surface. Um, to give you a couple examples of, of things off the top of my head, uh, of a type of jacket typically worn in England by men, uh, mostly men called a doublet, there's almost 50 that survive across Europe from the 16th and 17th century. Of the ladies' coifs, their caps, there's at least about three dozen, if not more, of those. Um, at Jamestown alone, down in Virginia, uh, there's at least uh, at least a million, probably closer to two million artifacts from this time period found in that one spot, and you can add that to what's found in the rest of the world. Um, on top of that, we're looking at about 100 years after painters like Da Vinci and Michelangelo were working. So again, we're looking at thousands and thousands and thousands of drawings and paintings and sculptures and prints and all things like that. The trick then is sifting through those, trying to figure out what is a biblical scene, what is allegorical, and figuring out if this is actually real life, or is this some person imagining what time back then looked like. Um, on top of that, and one of the reasons we know so much about Plymouth is writing. Um, we can look at Governor Bradford's journal, we can look at a number of other letters. The printing press by this point, by the time Plymouth is settled, is almost 200 years old. So there are again thousands and thousands of written sources like letters, receipts, church records, wills, inventories, books, plays, songs, and so on. So there's a lot to go through, and there's a lot that tells us about their lives. Um, my favorite part about this sort of thing is really sort of mining those things. Um, hunting down someone's breakfast from a journal here, or the rants of a disgruntled author there, and putting it all together to form a more complete picture of their world, how things looked, and how they identified what they saw. Um, most of what follows does focus on the Plymouth Colony. I'm going to be drawing a little bit from what happens in Virginia, uh, as well as uh, later colonies in New England, like uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, as all of that is part of the shared English experience. Um, I'll be talking a little tiny bit about some of the Spanish, or Basque, or French, or Dutch folks who are in the area, but most of the emphasis is going to be really, really heavily on English because, of course, Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay were English settlements. 
Um, so part of that, too, is that there were folks from the Virginia colony up in this area. Stephen Hopkins was at Jamestown. Uh, a man named Bartholomew Gosnold and even Captain John Smith were all in this region. So even though there are different folks in different parts of North America at this point from England, a lot of them are, are overlapping a little bit. Um, so starting with some of that evidence, images made here in North America by English artists or English people depicting themselves here are pretty unusual. Um, we have a really, really, really small sample of things to look at. Um, on your left here, um, you will see a uh, little painting by the artist John White, who later went on to be the governor of the Roanoke colony, which didn't last very long. Um, but this isn't a settlement here. He does not depict, or at least none of his depictions of English people at Roanoke survive. But we do have this image of English sailors and soldiers up in Canada uh, at, at uh, Bloody Point. So it's a little small, but we can see some Inuit folks. We also see... Um, English men in the boat. So we can get a feel for him drawing what English people are wearing, some of the colors that might have been common. We can't take this necessarily at face value because it might have been colored later. We don't necessarily know. Um, but very likely this is showing people contemporary to him who were in this general region. Um, a little bit after that, the first images that I'm aware of of English colonists drawn by English colonists are these slate tablets found in a, uh, in a will at James, uh, sorry, well, not will, at Jamestown, uh, dated to around 1609. So the slate tablets might have belonged to William Strachey, the uh, secretary down there, um, where you might have almost like a chalkboard, take temporary notes or do equations and that sort of thing on a slate tablet. Um, it's hard to say if these are by an adult, hard to say if they're by a child, but they show what is definitely English clothing um, being worn. Unfortunately, they don't yield a lot of good detail, but that's probably about it. Fortunately, looking back at Europe, uh, we have lots of things to look at. Um, I'm going to be showing you again a really small sample of what they had. We can look at those thousands of records of all kinds and put together a pretty good picture that shows us all kinds of colors and garments and materials and all that. Um, but there's a lot. So Fines Morrison, an English traveler uh, who goes around Europe and uh, Turkey and other places around there, writes in 1605, if I should begin to set down the variety of fashions and foreign stuffs brought in England in these times, I might seem to number the stars of heaven and the sands of the sea. So again, we're really just scratching the surface here. But I hope this will give you a good idea of generally what's being worn. So first, I'm going to just slightly introduce some of the ladies' clothes. Again, at the end, if you'd like, I have a few examples of some of these things. Um, another tricky part about England is that the trend for depicting common people in color was not super common just yet. They're definitely out there, but there aren't as many as on the continent, we are, where you have a lot of Dutch and Flemish and German and Spanish artists and French artists drawing regular folks in color. In England, there's a great tradition for black and white prints, so I'll show you some of those as well. So I had to draw from some of those European images, but I've been looking at those English ones alongside them to make sure that they line up with what they're wearing back in England. Um, so the general undergarment for ladies is a smock, We'd call it a shirt. Um, you may have heard shift, but at this point in history, shift is mostly a verb, as in you change something, or it's a noun, as in a whole change of clothes. So oftentimes in primary source records, when you see someone mentioning a shift, it's very often talking about a whole change of clothes. I'm going to shift myself, my shift of clothes after riding, that sort of thing. So smock is the universal word 
for ladies' shirt at this point in England for the most part. Chemise also doesn't really show up um, in English records written by English people. Um, on top of the smock, uh, the next layer is a supportive layer that we'd probably call upper bodies or bodies or earlier a kirtle. And that's sort of like an uh, probably unboned, uh, meaning it doesn't have whalebone or real stiffening in it besides quilted layers of canvas um, that'll support the body and is flexible and breathable. So you kind of see in the lady in the red on the far left, she's probably wearing an upper bodies with canvas on the inside that works a little bit more like a sports bra than the kind of stiff corset we imagine. And the stiff and corset kind of things we often picture really only come in about the 1590s uh, for the most part. And then they're mostly worn by upper class people who don't have to work for a living. So most folks, the upper class included, are still probably wearing mostly canvas. Um, very breathable, very flexible, but tough that's going to do the job it needs to do along with good fit. Often joined to that is what's called a petticoat or skirt. These are very often connected. Sometimes they're separate. Um, they're not always the same color. You see the top and the bottom layer being the same color here. Red is one of the more typical colors you see for ladies' clothes. Um, I want to interject here as well that some of this information is, is coming from other folks. Um, what I'm doing today is, is built on the, or standing on the shoulders of giants where there are too many excellent researchers to count um, who've committed their lives to understanding people of the past and connecting to the people of today. Um, so some of this, for example, the Tudor Taylor has done a lot of interesting work as far as figuring out what colors are typical in English people's records as well as Stuart Peach and a couple other sources. Um, so after the bodies and petticoat, um, we have a waistcoat or jacket, and you see the middle woman getting dressed in a jacket or waistcoat. In records, these are almost always made of wool. Um, there are many that survive today that are almost all linen, except for I think one or two in silk, and across the board all the survive one, surviving ones are embroidered. Um, but in English records, English people, except for the very, very wealthy, are probably wearing mostly wool of these. Um, uh, leather is really unusual in ladies' records in England. There's a woman here named Mary Ring who has a pair of buff sleeves, which is probably a kind of leather, but it also could be a color. Um, but otherwise, in ladies' records, leather is super, super uncommon. Um, the other option, if not a jacket or waistcoat over the bodies and the petticoat, is a gown. The woman on the far right from the map is wearing a gown. You see the top and the bottom connected. And English women also do not appear to have owned many coats. Most English women in this period are wearing some sort of gown, um, sort of like the blue one there, but there are other variations as well. Um, Another tricky part about ladies is that there's almost no evidence in this time period for ladies wearing knit caps. We know knit caps are very, very common amongst men, but knit caps are almost non-existent in ladies' records. Uh, in the 1570s there, and through the 1590s, there was an English law which required women to wear a knit cap. Um, we don't know what those look like necessarily. There's a lot of really great research being done right now, but as far as I know, it's still sort of unclear as to what those look like. But by this time, Women are most typically wearing an arrangement of white linen on their heads with a hat on top of it or wearing the white linen alone. Um, so on to men, they're wearing a shirt, so a white linen shirt. Shirts are in this period are almost always, and I'm not going to say always, I'm not going to say never, but almost always looking across those primary sources, they're almost always white or whitish. Um, probably has a lot to do with laundry and dyes running out with natural dyes and that sort of thing. Um, later on, you get some other colors, but for the most part, they're white. Uh, and that's true of women as well. Um, the primary sort of outfit men are wearing is basically a suit. You're looking at a top, a jacket called a doublet, that very often has a few layers, and a bottom, 
called breeches or hose, which are sort of like their pants or shorts. Um, they're very often joined together at the waist, and you can see some examples later on, um, with hooks or ties, and that will keep your pants up pretty much. So looking at this time period, if you think back to the 1940s uh, and around that era when you have the high waist in your clothes and you've got suspenders, in this period, connecting the top and the bottom, make sure you don't have anything, any uh, clothing malfunctions or plumber's crack or anything like that. It does, works really well. <laughs> uh, they're also wearing stocking shoes, boots and a hat. Men in this period, unless you're a learned man, you've gone to uh, university to be a doctor or a surgeon or a scientist of some sort, you typically don't wear a coif or a cap as ladies do. Um, when they are, they're black or red. And we can go into more detail with that later if you have more specific questions. Um, the mechanics of wearing a kind of almost a onesie are actually pretty easy. That's a very frequently asked question here. Um, if anyone's ever worn coveralls or Carhartts or a romper, same thing. And you can Google that kind of thing if you want to want to learn more about how to use the facilities in that sort of outfit. But they work pretty well. Um, unlike women, leather clothing is very common for men. Um, to that end, both in Virginia and in Massachusetts Bay, sturdy leather suits with leather linings end up being imported uh, to North America. Um, at the far end, in the man in the red from the Trevelyan Miscellany of 1608, we see what's called a cassock, uh, which is sometimes interchangeable with the doublet. Um, it's just kind of like a pullover, and they can be made of wool or canvas. And they're very practical. Um, so again, thinking about some of those connections to the present day, we're not too far off from wearing similar clothes to these people. Um, the days of covering one's body really aren't so different, uh, distant. Broadly speaking, there's no difference in the number of layers between 17th century clothes and formal modern clothes. Um, even similar materials are still being used like linen and wool and leather. So we haven't really moved that far away. Um, these materials work with the body to regulate temperature and negate sunburn. And it's really the advent of climate control that's allowed us to move away from this sort of thing, covering our bodies, uh, wearing wool suits, as people did up until recent decades in unair-conditioned office buildings. Um, now we have air conditioning in our homes and cars and businesses and schools. At no point, or at very few points, do, does the average person's body really interact with the environment for very long. So we don't need to really do that a whole lot anymore, and, and which also enables us to add plastic, uh, like polyester or nylon to our clothes. Um, so looking at these sort of things, you know, even though we're often reminded of these sorts of layers with shows like Mad Men or Boardwalk Empire, um, or movies like Suffragette, this is the same kind of thing we're looking at. Um, men, historically, again, men and women are wearing an underlayer, a shirt, which forms most of their underwear. They're wearing, uh, ladies in the, in the case of ladies, they're wearing a supportive garment or the bra. Um, then they're wearing a jacket or a gown or a coat or breeches. It's really no different in the number of layers. And in fact, if you wear an undershirt underneath your dress shirt design right now and then I put a coat on top of it, you're actually wearing more layers than the average person back then. Um, so we often, are, we often encounter people uh, who are concerned about the number of layers being worn at this time period. But in reality, it's about the same as today. Um, if you look at the middle, the woman in the, uh, has an apron as many women in this time period wore. She's got a skirt. She probably has supportive underlayers. She probably has a shift um, or a slip. Not so different. Of course, we have Colonel Sanders, who wore his trademark suit, probably a lot. I didn't know him personally. Uh, but, you know, that's an iconic figure who is on quite a few billboards. And we see him very often. And, and yet we often imagine that these people couldn't have possibly lived in their two or three-piece suits. Um, 
Another point that was brought up to me recently, there was a, a woman I met at the Jamestown conference um, named Ann Balto who brought up um, that many Japanese construction workers today um, wear baggy trousers that are inspired by um, later European styles of clothes. And they swear that those baggy trousers as sort of what some of these guys are wearing here, especially this fellow in the middle, um, alert you to danger because they come kind of like cat's whiskers. They brush against things before your body does and alert you to it. They allow greater freedom of movement. So there's a lot of sense in wearing these things besides just for the sake of, you know, looking kind of weird in our eyes. Um, so, of course, I think many of us have grown up and throughout our lives encountered the idea that the pilgrims and settlers who just wore black. Um, I remember when I was in grade school, I was certainly taught that. And if you go in any shop around this time of year, you'll probably find almost everything in black or really sad colors. Uh, and in reality, people this time period, and including the people here, were wearing a lot of color. Um, they do certainly own black. Just like today, they're saving black for formal occasions because if you think about what it takes to make a deep, dark black, it takes a lot of dye and a lot of color. So that's a great expense. Um, if you've ever seen, you know, for example, a Crayola black marker get wet on a piece of paper, it'll sort of bleed out and you'll see all the colors that comprise the black. So if you're actually gonna have a very deep, dark, rich black and not just a sheep's black, which is just a really dark brown, the natural color of some sheep's fleece, or a poor black, which has a greenish cast or is kind of just a dark gray, that sort of thing. Real black is pretty expensive back then. Um, so if you take a step back and objectively think about it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you as an entire group or community wear the most expensive, or some of the most expensive cloth you could have and then go toil in the wilderness and run through the woods. It doesn't add up. Um, on top of that, there is a Puritan named Walter Fish who is actually one of Queen Elizabeth I's tailors who in his uh, 1585 will, he writes that at his own funeral, probably in our eyes at least, probably one of the better places to use black, he says that there should be no blacks or such, vain, uh, such like vain pomp or ceremony used, or in mine own opinion, do rather agree with popery and paganism. So here's a uh, dyed-in-the-wool uh, Puritan who's saying at, the, you know, at a funeral, no black at all. So in reality, these people are wearing color. We can then look to things like the wills and inventories of people who settled here, the people we've all been probably grown up believing just wore black and white, and we can see they owned a lot of color. Uh, Elder Brewster, one of the leaders in their church, for example, is in his inventory in 1641, has clothes and textiles in black, green, blue, red, white, and violet. Another woman uh, whose will and inventory approved in 1631, uh, Mary Ring of the Leiden, con uh, Leiden Congregation back in Holland, who eventually comes here, has in her inventory clothes and fabric in the colors of black, gray, red, blue, violet, murray, which is kind of like a purplish almost, uh, white, and mingo-colored. So if you imagine kind of mingled, kind of mixed colors a little bit. So either yarns that are uh, woven together, different colors, that sort of thing. So that's just two out of a great many. So those two examples, a Leiden uh, congregant who is a, a member of the Separatist Church and one of the leaders of the Separatist Church here both have a ton of color in what they wear. Um, we can then look to even King James himself. At least in one of his paintings, he's painted in black. So this is not a symbol of their religious group. Um, we have a lot of images of Dutch people, like these, uh, this lovely couple here um, by Franz Hals. And that's, I think, what a lot of us are used to seeing. 
Now, again, if you take a step back and we think about the expense of a portrait, we think about the expense of black. If I'm going to afford a portrait, I'm probably going to be paid in some of my better clothes. So this is not a show necessarily of sobriety and religious affiliation. This is a show of, look at me, I'm wealthy, that sort of thing. Um, the only image we have of a pilgrim, pilgrim who came on the Mayflower uh, who was, that was painted in his own lifetime is Edward Winslow uh, when he goes back to London in the 1650s. And in his portrait that you can see downtown today, he's wearing black. Um, and again, that is very, very likely a show of status. I'm sorry, did you have? Oh. Uh, the rough thing? Oh, ah, sorry. That thing there? Uh, that is a show of wealth. So um, it's a way of showing off. In a time without the latest iPhone, without nice cars, without nice watches, the way you communicate your status to other people in the street is through your clothes. So looking at the rough there, or also what they call a band, um, as these folks either have King James and Edward Winslow all have what they would kind of lump in into category that they'd probably call bands. Um, imagine cramming a lot of expensive fabric into a very small space using starch, which means you have to invest money or time in its upkeep, and putting something like that very precariously beneath the place where you eat. So if you think about other things in our society, ripped jeans and buying them that way, there are some parallels probably in our world where people buy things because they can. And they want to say, I don't even care if this gets ruined. Um, so that's possibly uh, what it is. Um, so before we get to the new world, I want to talk a little bit about what happens back home, back in England, um, because they're wearing pretty much the same sort of things here as there. Um, very few of, or very little of what you wore would actually be made in the home. Um, in this time period, you have tailors who are professional. They've been working for a couple centuries uh, in that capacity. And I'll talk a little, bit about, a little bit more about them in a moment. Um, women at home might spin yarn or thread, uh, sometimes with a wheel, as depicted here uh, with this woman, um, sometimes with gravity-fed spinning devices. Um, but the only clothes that most people are typically making for themselves and their families is things like shirts, smocks, those body linens or shirts, uh, napkins, tablecloths, um, coifs, aprons. And the important thing about those things is that they're all mostly rectangles. They don't require a whole lot of training. There's no real complicated fitting. They're flat. They're not lined. There's no structure inside. Those are all things that, without knowing, needing to know how to shape the body, you could pass on feasibly from, say, mother to daughter. Um, that's about it being made in the home as far as clothes go. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about why that is in a minute. And even in this period, at least by the 1670s, 1680s, when uh, Randall Holm publishes a book of a lot of things from the natural world as well as man-made objects, um, he differentiates between what is the tailor's tool and what is the seamster's or seamstress's tool. So you can see on the left here, there's the tailor's thimble. You can still find bespoke tailors today in places like London or other parts of the world using a sort of ring thimble. The on, the, on the right is a semsters or seamsters thimble with a cap on it like, we're more, like we are more familiar with today. So even in this point in history, it's pretty gendered. It's pretty separated as to who does what and with what tools. Otherwise, you're still going to use scissors. You're still going to use irons, pins, that sort of thing. Um, going on to tailors, and again, I'll read through this thing, So, but if you want to prefer to read to, go right ahead. I encourage you to. Um, on the left, you'll see a, a German tailor from the 1560s. Unfortunately, uh, along with the kind of lack of certain images in, English in an English context, 
there are no images of English tailors that I'm aware of from this time. They're Spanish, Polish, German, uh, Dutch, but no English ones. Though, of course, we know they had them. Um, so tailors and itinerant tailors make these structured outer garments for both men and women. Um, they have roots in the 1300s per a royal charter, and they become their own entity, separate from linen armors, who make kind of padded armor, uh, made of fabric alone, or you might wear it under other armor for protection or padding, um, in 1508. To become a tailor, it takes at least about seven years of an apprenticeship, sometimes a little bit more, so you can equate that sort of with any trade in this time period, to about the time you spend in high school and college. So they're spending about that time working closely with a master who understands that trade and craft. And at the end of that, they can then eventually move on to becoming a master in their own right. But it takes a lot of training to understand. Um, it's very likely all men, or almost all men in this time period, um, the overseers of an Essex parish, parish in 1603 write that none shall set any man tailor or woman tailor being single persons to work in their houses nor otherwise, so long any tailor is uh, so long any tailor a married man in the parish that can or will do the same work. So it's possible there's some out there. Again, in written, written records, it's mostly men, almost all men. I haven't encountered, in my own looking, any female tailors in this time period. Uh, the farther you move into the 17th century and beyond into the 18th century, then you start to have more women making clothes for women in the form of what are called mantua makers. Um, but that's not quite yet. Um, these tailors belong to a guild, so those guilds are kind of like trade unions that protect your trade secrets and also prevent aliens like Huguenot or French Protestant refugees or the Dutch from taking jobs. Uh, if you're a tailor, you might also specialize, so you might be a doublet tailor, you might be a petticoat or gown tailor, the most certainly probably a training across the board. Um, looking at the cost of things, it's really difficult to translate how much a tailor gets paid for their work into today's money. But if you're going to get a garment in this time from a, from a tailor, about 80 to 90% of that cost is going into the materials alone. And that comes from uh, Stuart Peachy, who's been looking into the cost of, of that sort of thing. So if you think about all the steps between taking a farm animal or a plant and turning it into a piece of cloth you can use, there's a lot of people in between. So that adds up quite a bit. So clothing at this point and uh, cloth at this point is a big commodity. So very often, you would buy the cloth yourself, just as we know our shirt sizes and pant sizes today. You would probably know the length of cloth needed for any given garment. You go to the market, you buy it, and you might bring that to the tailor, tailor and they'll make it out of your own cloth, um, for the most part, it seems. Um, for example, there's a, a record of a woman who uh, writes about having um, uh, her own cloth, or you know, records from a court case. It's, uh, it's said that the woman has a, uh, a woman's coat for her of red cloth of the defendant's own cloth, so she owns that material. Um, we also have some folks uh, spinning at home, as I mentioned before. So there's a pair of uh, woolen hose of the defendant's own yarn, so they might be doing that at home. They might have purchased it. It's sort of unclear. Um, but again, people usually purchase their own cloth, it looks like. Um, so this, I hope, really sort of illustrates the difference between what a tailor does, who received that sort of training and apprenticeship, and what a regular kind of home sewer does in this time period. Even if you think ahead a little bit to, say, Little House on the Prairie or the Oregon Trail, most of those people in the home are not making the formal suits or the gowns. They're making the kind of rectangular prairie dresses and that sort of thing. So this is, for the most part, at least in this time period, a protected trade that you don't have access to the knowledge of how to do just yet. Um, so the big thing about Taylor's work is that it's three-dimensional. They use canvas, stiffening, 
interlinings, quilting, fitting, and stretching a fabric to take something that's flat and encase the body to suit fashion. So in some cases, you can kind of imagine Spanx for men a little bit and the way that they kind of shape and redistribute all of our body's interesting things. Um, as another example, there's a child's doublet or jacket. And these are both doublets here. You can see the padding inside of them. You can see their layers. Um, but the child's doublet from about 1600 made of linen canvas has at least about three layers in it. So one on the outside, one on the inside as it's lining, and then structure in between so it navigates the body's curves and lumps and bumps without having unnecessary wrinkles and that sort of thing. Um, if you think about, again, modern clothes, if you look under the lapels of a suit, you feel the chest or the shoulders for both men's and ladies' formal clothes, you're still going to find shoulder pads or quilting in the chest to shape the body. So in addition to tailors, you could also get your clothes in a number of other ways as well. Um, you could quite literally in this time go to the market, go to a store and buy clothes, um, both new and secondhand. Uh, most major European cities and towns had this option available. Um, some of those garments would have been made in England. Some of them were imported from the Low Countries or other places in Europe. Um, we have such references as a dialogue book from Italian to English to Italian from 1605, which has in it as one example. Yes, madam, I must humbly thank you. Believe me, you, uh, believe me, you have bestowed your money very well and have good cheap. Will you buy no shirts, ruffs, falling bands or collars, handkerchiefs, night coifs, falls, probably again collars, uh, socks, edge lace, or boot hose wrought, or anything that we, will, that anything that we have, that all is at your commandment. So those are just a few things you could quite literally buy at the market in this time period. Um, some people also get clothing as payment in exchange for work, because again, clothing is costly. Um, there's an example uh, from the 1630s. I hired Louis Pew to drive the plow for 15 shillings and an old breech, probably a pair of trousers, uh, or six pence and an old stocking. Doesn't sound like a great deal to me, but I guess it's the way it goes. Yes. Yeah, um, so some of the titles come from original sources. Most of them don't. Um, that comes from a gentleman named Philip Stubbs who's writing in the 1580s. He rants about uh, insane fashions and how the, the, not just the kids, but mostly the kids of today wearing kind of outrageous things, which probably should sound familiar to most of us here. Um, people back then weren't super different. So he says the tailors heap sin upon sin in their work. Um, the poor are sometimes given clothes and textiles to make sure that they don't freeze in the wintertime and that sort of thing. So we have, uh, for example, in the house of the poor of Mr. Tooley's foundation, um, people are given a gown, bedding, and other such provision. So you might be, if you're at the very uh, sort of bottom of the social food chain, you might actually be given clothes. Um, some clothes are given in both wills and back at home and in the new world. Um, and I'll go on a little bit about that later on. The important thing about getting clothes through wills and bequeathment is that they can only happen once. It's not really a reliable way to get clothes, but because, again, clothes are commodities, because they can be refashioned or reshaped to fit your body, people can be given clothes and inheritance. So now we move over to New England, where we are today. Um, so this is a map by Samuel Champlain of Plymouth Harbor. He's here quite a bit before the pilgrims get here. Um, here in the Plymouth Colony, we don't know of any tailors working for about the first 12 years, or at least I haven't come across evidence for it. Um, there are two that come on the Mayflower. Isaac Allerton, who lives for quite a while longer, eventually ends up near Connecticut. Uh, he worked as a tailor in Leiden, but he trained as a blacksmith. 
um, possibly uh, with skills gleaned from his tailor father. Um, he apprenticed the blacksmith for seven years from 1609, but he ends up in Le uh, Leiden in 1611. Um, he, in 1619, he takes out an apprentice named John Hook, but John Hook passes away in the Mayflower uh, when they get here. Um, Allerton goes on to become the uh, governor's secretary or assistant. As far as I've found, as far as anyone that I've talked to knows, he doesn't do any sort of textile-related stuff for the rest of his days. Maybe he did, but he's kind of busy surviving at first and that sort of thing. Um, there's also a man named uh, James Chilton, a tailor on the Mayflower, but he also passes away. The next named tailors come in 1632. Uh, Richard Higgins on an unknown ship and John Smalley on the William and Francis. Um, we can contrast that with Jamestown, where they have at least seven tailors in the first uh, year, um, though many end up serving as soldiers. Uh, in 1626, there's a regulation which seems to hint at uh, tailors being here, or at least anticipating the tailors will come, but it's hard to say, so it pretty much just describes that if you're a tailor or shoemaker, and there's a number of other trades listed that I've abbreviated today, um, which do or may reside or belong to this plantation of Plymouth, shall use their science or trade at home or abroad for any strangers or, or strangers or foreigners until such time as the necessity allows. So if they are here, they're not being permitted by the company to practice that trade. Um, by 1639, William Wood writes that you can purchase clothes in North America in English settlements, but they're at a much greater cost than back in England. And again, if you'd like to uh, see more of the images later, I'm happy to go back. Um, what we do have here is provision lists. So folks from Europe had been in this region and part of the world for at least 100 years before Plymouth is settled. Um, we have uh, John Cabot of Bristol, who's in Canada in the 1490s. We have Basque fishermen from Spain uh, in Nova Scotia in the 1550s. Samuel de Champlain, as I showed you the map a minute ago, was here in 1600. John Smith of the Pocahontas story, we all uh, know and love, was here in 1614 exploring. So they're all reporting back to what they see back at, uh, here in North America. They're telling you what the weather is like, what to expect. Um, so what we end up seeing people bring is pretty reflective, pretty average for the time. So we have a couple doublets, a couple suits made of different materials to, su to suit different kinds of weather. We have shoes, we have stockings, um, we have a knit cap, um, we have garters, we've got points, which are things for tying things together. Um, strangely, not a lot of coats, not a lot of cloaks, not a lot of boots, and none of them mention women's clothes, unfortunately. Um, we do know coats and hats are here, though. Governor Bradford and other sources write about them. Uh, as well as what they would call sea gowns or sea coats. Um, we know they owned a variety of those. The Massachusetts Bay Colony also recommends uh, waistcoats, in this case being kind of vests made of cloth or uh, sometimes knit back home in Europe that you might wear under your clothes like a sweater vest. Um, we also see some folks coming to America being advised to bring uh, neckerchiefs or neckcloths, um, strangely made of plant cotton, which is pretty unusual from this time, that they would call calico. And they say that the men are wearing these in the summertime as bands or neck coverings. So they're probably wearing kind of like a bandana around the neck to shield it from the sun. Um, um, so again, frustratingly, these lists don't really speak much to women's clothes. Um, William Wood of uh, New England's Prospect does call for green says. Says is a kind of wool for the housewives' aprons, but that's about it. Women are, of course, here. Uh, we have their wills, their inventories, they're mentioned in um, any number of records and letters, but we just don't know what they're told to bring, if they're told to bring anything beyond what they already had. 
Um, and I have this friendly astronaut here. Um, if you think about setting up a colony in the new world, you know folks have been there before. We know people have been to space. You can report back on what the conditions are like. So imagine the men and women on, on board the International Space Station today, unable to perform certain trades, whether or not they had them going into where they are now, but they can't do that. So they're reliant on resupply every so often. So here's a couple things that we see on provision lists. Um, some of the things are unclear, and I'll explain some of the more obscure ones. And again, I've got some examples up here if you want to take a look later. Um, we have clothes of different materials made for different kinds of weather. Um, canvas is a big one made of linen or hemp. Very, very breathable and comfortable. Um, there's a letter um, from Stephen Smith to his godfather, Hugh Smith, in 1620. He's on a shopping trip for his uh, godfather. And he says, your tailor and I consider that canvas was only fit for summer and therefore have buttoned it according to the fashion now in request. I should put you to the charges of a new satin doublet made of silk against the winter. So that's all in their, their headspace. They're thinking about what to wear and when. Um, we also have pop culture to look at. So of course we can't read Shakespeare and take for granted that what he says in those plays is completely accurate as you know, a reflection of real life all the time. But in some plays, there's a little snippet that, re that reflects what we see in those other written records. So for example, in a play called The City Gallant by John Cook in 1611, he describes servants' coats in the winter being made of frieze, which is a very thick waterproof wool. And we see frieze suits being recommended to be brought with you to North America, both New England and down in Virginia. Um, we have a variety of knit caps, Monmouth caps, if you've ever done any looking into this time period, it's kind of a headache and a nightmare. Um, no one is quite sure what a Monmouth cap looked like. Um, there is a surviving knit cap in the collection, I think now of the Museum of Wales, um, that supposedly comes from the 16th century, but it can't be traced back before the 20th. It does, however, resemble very closely hats that show up again and again in images of what is most certainly a knit cap, like that one there with a little bun uh, button on top and a little loop that almost looks like a beanie. Um, those are recommended across the board for men coming to the English colonies, both down south and up here, and you see it very frequently mentioned in written records and pop culture in the time uh, for soldiers and sailors. So they're thinking of something very practical. Another option might be sort of a brimmed hat uh, that's knit. Um, we don't know for certain. Um, Stuart Peachy has looked into some of the, the weights of things when they're being weighed and they're, they're uh, being imported and exported, so some of that might shed some light. But an English sailor named Edward Coxiery writes in the middle of the 17th century that his Monmouth cap has brims being doubled. So we know that it has a brim, and we know that it's double, so that it might hint at its appearance and at how it was made. Um, another thing that we tend to see in the colonies, and also very commonly back in Europe, is stockings made of fabric rather than knit. Knit stockings around in this time period, but across the board, up and down the coast, people coming to North America are recommended to bring with them stockings, almost always wool, uh, fabric. And they always, or, or they often have some features like this little triangular gusset here at the side of the ankle to spread it over the foot, which is then reflected in a lot of the knit stockings of the time. Um, it's not really needed, as far as I understand, as far as knitting goes, but it's present. So those are some of the, the things we tend to see. And then on the left here is a suit. Um, probably would have had fastening, usually buttons, but you can kind of see a joined suit together made of probably the same cloth. Um, Frustratingly, provision lists also don't tend to say that you should bring needles and thread with you. Um, it's probably suggested, or it's probably implied, if you look at the bottom of this one, I don't know how easy it is to read, but it recommends bringing with you certain lengths of canvas to make your own mattress. So can't do much good if you don't have needle and thread, so we can assume they probably have those. Um, 
So looking at whether or not they're prepared, it looks like looking at some of those wills and inventories, they knew what to bring. Um, and they followed through on a lot of it. So we can find those Irish stockings that are mentioned here, made of wool fabric, probably like these ones in the corner here, um, very frequently. We know they bring clothes made of the materials I mentioned a little bit about. Um, but here in, a, in this colony, in a lot of the New England colonies, uh, or a lot of the English colonies, um, people are told they'll be provided for. So if you're leaving to North America, you might sell or mortgage your house to afford some of the things you don't already have. And then as part of the bargain, you're going to get clothes or food or tools or things like that. So you can then focus on surviving and trading and building a community and food sources and that sort of thing. So even though Isaac Allerton, for example, was a tailor and possibly a blacksmith at one point in his life, when you get here, because there's no houses waiting for you, there's no farms waiting for you, there's potentially, uh, there's neighbors you might potentially not get along with here and that's about it, you probably want to focus on getting by before you go back in your English trades. And if you're getting the things anyways, there's not much point in you doing it. Um, there is, uh, it, Bradford mentions that all such persons as are of this colony are to have their apparel and all provisions, sorry, uh, out of the common stock and goods of said colony. So at least people coming here are told, or, oops, sorry, are suggested that they're going to get stuff in exchange for their work. Um, there are people, though, um, who take that a little bit too much to heart, who are told the colony will provide for you. And so we have some folks who, before leaving England, actually sell their coats and other things. So uh, Bradford again writes, neither had, they, uh, neither had they any bedding nor over many clothes, for many of them had brushed, probably meaning sold or given away, their coats and cloaks at Plymouth in England as they came. Which, to me, and hopefully you, that sounds crazy. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't want to do that. Um, but other folks are a little bit better provisioned. So we have William Mullins, for example, who is a Mayflower passenger, who brings over 21 dozen pairs of shoes. Yeah, <laughs> you got to be ready. Um, and at least 13 pairs of boots. It might be implied in the text that it might be 13 dozen, but it's hard to say, and shoes tend to be more common in those written records anyways. Um, and he says when he, uh, in his will, um, those shoes and boots are to be given uh, onto the company's hands. So there's going to go into the community stocks at the end. Another big question is how long the clothes last? Um, you know, a big thing to think about is that just like today, you have people who will get new clothes and within minutes, you'll uh, have your clothes riddled with holes. Um, and you'll also have people who have the same comfortable pair of jeans for 20 years. People are people then and now. And there's a good chance that they were just like that back then. So it's hard to say how long average folks' clothes last because we don't have every single receipt from uh, regular folks in the time from hiring the tailor or purchasing the cloth. We do have a couple things though, like soldiers' records. So soldiers' records who are probably doing work comparable to colonists uh, are getting two full issues of clothes a year, one for summer, one for winter. And that's pretty regular across the board for English soldiers serving in Holland and uh, Ireland. They're, they're, they line up pretty well. So in one 1608 example, common soldiers get two doublets, two pairs of breeches, one cassock, which is that kind of, um, sometimes kind of like a coat, sometimes like a pullover, um, five pairs of stockings, four, sh uh, four shirts, four bands, kind of collars, uh, one cap, one hat, and five shoes a year. So they could probably purchase other things on top of that. So we can look at them getting those things every single year, assuming supply lines aren't uh, sabotaged or anything like that. Um, so again, they're fighting, they're digging, they're laboring, they're building things, so it's pretty 
close probably to what colonists are doing and how hard they're working. There's a new tax levied in 1637, and one man writes that though the poor man may, may give 18 pence more for his suit, yet at least it will last him two years. So there's a hard number there we can look at for the kind of regular guy and how long the clothes are lasting. And he goes on to say that on working days he wears uh, sackcloth or canvas, which are probably very similar to each other, probably made of hemp or linen, very durable, good for the summertime, uh, or skins, leather, um, so that his increase is only nine pence a year, the price of one day's work. It also fills in the gap uh, as far as what people make in a day. Um, so the big question here is where does it come from? So again, people are told they're going to get clothes here. We have some records which say that Birch and Lane suits are sent over. Um, we can look to records of London to figure out what is on Birch and Lane that makes it so special. Um, there's a survey of London written in 50, uh, 1598 um, by uh, Stowe, and he says that Birch and Lane is kind of a hotspot and had for centuries uh, been a hotspot for what appears to be secondhand clothes and cloth. So they might be getting new clothes from there, they might be getting used clothes, it's kind of hard to say, but Stowe says that this lane and the high street here adjoining hath been inhabited for the most part with wealthy drapers from Birchover's Lane on the side of the street down to the stocks. In the, Henry, in the reign of Henry VI uh, had the most part dwelling fripperers or upholders who were kind of secondhand clothes merchants or restorers uh, that sold old apparel and household stuff. Um, most folks probably had clothes made just for them, so again, you'd buy the cloth usually, bring it to the tailor, the tailor would take your measurements and make that pattern directly on the cloth. Um, representatives from the colony also supply things, uh, from the company also supply things from time to time. Edward Winslow brings a pretty good supply with him, as it's uh, described there. In 1624, James Shirley um, writes of uh, sending to the colony cloth, hose, what are probably stockings in this case, shoes and leather. Um, so we're, we're, they're getting that. There's also a ship, the Sparrowhawk, that wrecks um, not far from here, and the crew survives. And so Bradford says of dealing with the crew, um, the crew was sold corn and other provisions of food for clothing, for they had diverse kinds, as cloth, perpetuanas, which is a type of wool similar to kind of to modern suiting, uh, possibly, and other stuffs besides hose and shoes, and such like commodities, commodities as the, the planters stood in need of. So they're getting clothes shipped in, they have clothes that they already had with them, and they're also getting clothes from passing merchants like the Dutch later on, um, or people come to trade, or from uh, not very lucky ships. And a big question is, are they making things as well? Again, thinking of cloth as a commodity, uh, some people might have clothes that were partially constructed, um, there might be someone working on these things from time to time, but again, we don't really have evidence for Isaac Allerton or potential other tailors in the colony doing their jobs until much later on. But we do have things like a piece of linen to make a kercher, which you could do in the home, like a neckcloth, um, a coat unbound, um, uh, stuff for a cloak, a piece of uh, blue cloth to make a case for a bolster. So some of those things are things you might do at home making household linens. Some of those things like the coat are things that a tailor would have the know-how of how to do. Um, we do have folks in the colony with tailor's tools. Uh, Richard Lankford has a pair of tailor's shears, scissors, uh, in his uh, inventory and will in 1633. Um, other folks here, I think William Wright and Peter Brown, I believe, have irons, pressing irons. They might be metal at this point. As several, several have been found and depicted in art. Uh, as well as ceramic, and I've got a ceramic iron here with me today if you'd like to take a look. Um, so we've got a couple things that are 
possibly being, wor possibly being worked on, but if you look at 1633 when Samuel Fuller dies, there are probably tailors here working, so they might have been, that might have been their work. It's really hard to say. Um, and of course, like today, you can't really please everybody. Um, so uh, Emmanuel Altham getting off the boat to the Plymouth Colony in 1623-24 uh, says that indeed in this country is no clothes to be had, nor diverse other things which a, man may, which a man may make good shift without. So again, that is a change of clothes or a change of something. Um, and I'm sorry, this one's really long, but I want you to see the whole thing. I'm going to read it out so you don't have to stare and make your eyes bleed. Um, but Bradford writes, the strong or man of parts had no more in division of victuals and clothes than he that was weak and not able to do a quarter the other could. This was thought injustice. The aged and graver men to be ranked and equalized in labors and victuals and clothes with the meaner and younger sort, though uh, thought it some indignity and disrespect unto them. And for men's wives to be commanded to do service for other men as dressing the meat, washing the clothes, and so on, they deemed it a kind of slavery, and neither could many husbands well brook it. So in the early years of the colony, they try having a communal store of most things. People aren't super thrilled with that, believe it or not. Um, and when they get here, they mostly stick with English-style things. Um, there is an overwhelming desire across English sources to stick with familiar lifestyles, familiar clothes, comfortable manners of dress. Um, so while back in England, and probably here, if you're working in the fields or working in the forge, you might be working in your shirt sleeves, um, you probably would be wearing, again, that equivalent of a two- or three-piece suit in other points. Um, the only real adaptations they seem to make, at least in the early decades, is taking the linings out of breeches. So you have breeches of one lining, which show up in a few letters and written records like wills, um, as well as more lighter fabrics like stuff. Uh, stuff to them is a fabric roughly analogous to a modern suiting wool. So it's lightweight, it's smooth, it's not super heavy. Um, wool can be spun or woven in any number of ways, not always quite heavy and thick and itchy as we often imagine it is today. Um, we also have uh, colonists not being overly shy about removing layers as needed to cope with the environment or to create crude accessories to aid them in survival. Um, in Mort's relation in 1621, um, Englishmen are, are told by native people to cross a river, they should put off their breeches. Um, down in Jamestown, John Smith writes about, for want of shoes amongst the oyster banks, we tore our hats and clothes, we tied barks of trees about our feet to keep them from being cut. So they're adapting a little bit. They're not making shoes, if you don't have the know-how to do that. But they are trying to cope. Um, there, is, uh, there, I there are people who are really still sticking to their guns as far as keeping with English styles as well. So John Pory in 1619 down at Jamestown, and you think about the history of Jamestown where there's cannibalism, widespread disease, horrific incidents. People are still trying to dress to the nines. So he writes about... Um, a cowkeeper on Sundays wearing fresh flaming silk and the wife of a charcoal burner, a pretty filthy trade that was kind of reclusive, uh, wears a beaver hat with a fair pearl and a silken suit as well. So even after some pretty scary stuff, they still want to look good. Um, the idea, though, to, to adapt what they're doing does, is present in their minds, though. Um, uh, Beecham Plantagenet in 1648 kind of hypothetically writes that uh, if you come to North America, you, in theory, 
need buy no clothes, for a good weaver brought hither will make us our own flax, nine sorts of linen, uh, out of our own flax, nine sorts of linen, our own stag and deerskins, make the best Gentile and soldier's clothes, fittest for our woods. A doeskin breeches with fur inside in our short winter, it better than two broad cloths and warmer, so we need no English clothing. As far as other records say, they never actually follow through all the way on that. They keep on getting imports for quite a while. Um, one thing that often surprises people, again, is that English people don't really seem to adapt native clothes. Um, so even in this period when xenophobia was very much a cultural norm, there are some attempts at connecting English people and what they wear to the people of North America. Um, a lot of this is really firmly grounded in propaganda, so it's really kind of rosy in some cases. But we have some poems like London's Lottery, which talks about how England used to be a wilderness, but government and use of men made it a happy, charming place to live in today. So potentially Virginia or New England could be like that too. Um, John White, again, of the Roanoke Colony, depicts native people. So this is a Powhatan warrior from Virginia. We can see that White also made a series of images of ancient English people, Picts and Celts and that sort of thing. And the way he draws him is even a bit more wild than the way they're perceiving uh, native people. Again, the world wasn't all rosy. Um, so we have descriptions like the native people being uh, black like devils with horns and loose hair, some of diverse colors. So I don't want you to walk away thinking that I'm trying to whitewash the past and make it look like everybody got along all the time, because that was certainly not the case. But the idea at least was there in the back of their minds to connect people to people. Um, Right away when people get here, they connect clothes to what they knew back in Europe. So they very quickly uh, connect things like um, damask cloth, so damask figures with natural designs, floral designs. They see native people's bodies being painted or tattooed with that. Um, the women, they say, uh, William Strachey of the Virginia Colony writes about the women's bodies being embroidered with diverse works, probably again painted or um, tattooed or scarred or something like that rather than, you know, embroidered on your skin, which I hope was not the case. Um, they also relate the clothing that Native people are wearing. They talk a lot about how the Native clothing is a lot like Irish clothing and that of the Turks. So they'd seen a lot of these things before, and they don't make these people necessarily as much of an other as they might have otherwise. Um, we do, however, even though English people don't really adapt Irish clo uh, Native clothing seemingly at all, they are very quick to adapt Irish dress when English soldiers are serving in Ireland. So English troops are recommended at one point and a couple other ones to wear uh, Irish-style mantles or capes. You can see a mantle here with uh, knit or thrummed, which is little ends of yarn stuck through the weave, or furred cloaks, Irish shoes, and all those things are, are recommended over the English-style clothes because they perform better in that kind of environment. Um, and here up at the top, is a, a photo of a piece of a koi I examined at the Boston MFA. So you can see some of the natural designs that they're embroidering on their clothes that they recognize being very similar to native embellishment. Really quickly, here's an English sailor well before any of that too, wearing again an Irish style mantle with fur or knit things. We also have an English commander, Sir Thomas Lee, who had himself painted as an Irishman. He's still wearing most of the English stuff. He still is a... Um, he still has mostly English-style weapons, but in his right hand, there's an Irish-style throwing spear called a dart, and he's bare-legged as many Irish people fought at this point. So it's, again, that idea of adapting isn't necessarily for him. Um, Native people are given English clothes as gifts as well. 
So some of the folks in this region are given coats, they're given shirts, they're given hats, feathers, uh, bands, which are probably, again, those neck coverings. Um, so we see a lot of that. And interestingly, between Virginia and New England, Native people are being given red clothes. I've been trying really hard to figure out if there's a significance to why red. Because you can get red cheaply, and you can get red very expensively, but never specifies which in these. Um, it's my thought, looking alongside things like this, what's probably called a horseman's coat, the Native people are being given, that it's sort of theatrical. So you've got a man being given a horseman's coat, which isn't to keep you warm, very likely. It's big and loose and billowing to cover your nicer clothes uh, from the grime of the road while on horseback. So it's probably one layer, it's lightweight, it's not meant to keep you warm. But being very large, very voluminous, and often possibly red, that'll tell you that this person is a beacon of English goodwill. But that's just my hypothesis. Um, but we see those being given again and again. And relevant to that, there are no horses here in the first few years. So not much good as a horseman's coat if you don't have a horse to ride it with. Um, a few decades in, uh, uh, Bradford writes um, into, uh, to John Winthrop of Massachusetts Bay in 1645 on behalf of some Indians of Yarmouth who complained that Mr. Offley owes them six coats of trading cloth and a pair of small breeches. So earlier on, it, it seems like there's no difference between the English clothes the English folks might wear, but at least by the 1640s, it looks like there are particular clothes and cloth made just for trading to be given to Native people. And it's really hard to say what those look like or what really differentiates it between the two things. Um, oh, and here, this is another one of White's images. Unfortunately, we don't have any images of uh, Wampanoag or uh, the people of New England, but we do have quite a few of White's illustrations of Powhatan people. So here's uh, a woman, and if you look in the child's hands, there's actually an English doll dressed in a little English gown. So another thing that's probably given to them as gifts. So that's what I have for you, and thank you very much. Want to learn more? Download all of our full-length Voices from the Past episodes, as well as podcast sound bites from iTunes or stream live on SoundCloud. For more podcast news or to catch new episodes first, join the conversation on our social media channels or visit us online at www.plymouth.org. The Plymouth Plantation Podcast is produced by Hilary Goodnow and Tom Begley with support from Plymouth Plantation Incorporated and the Museum Experience Group. Our theme music was composed by John Prevedini. Thanks for listening. <laughs>